we're starting here now with part six of how to read and understand the Bible. Let me make a couple of quick announcements and then we'll dive right in. Don't forget uh, every Tuesday I have the privilege of being on the Christian Underground News Network and this week's topic was can we predict the date of the rapture? And a great topic, good discussion, and you can check that out on our podcast channel. And if you have not already done so, I encourage you to download the new uh, Not By Works mobile app. And the easiest way to get to it is just to go to our website, and right there on the homepage on the advertising banners, you'll see one that looks just like this screen. And you click on it, and it gives you step-by-step instructions. But basically, when you go to the App Store, you just want to look for that purple cross. It's called Ministry One. When you see that, download it, type in Not By Works Ministries, and it's pretty self-explanatory after that. But our app is getting a lot of hits and a lot of attraction because it's the kind of the one-stop central location for everything. All of our podcasts, all of our videos on Sundays and Wednesdays, um, other resources like my weekly devotional. A lot of people didn't even know we do a weekly devotional. It's in our church newsletter, but I don't do a lot with it with Not By Works, but now you can click one button and it takes you to literally hundreds of devotionals that I've done per week for the last several years. Uh, So download that app if you haven't done so uh, already. Uh, One other sort of housekeeping thing that I want to mention mainly for, well, I guess for everyone, whether you're here in the uh, auditorium or watching by live stream, uh, we're heading into the holiday season and heading into my travel season. So we will not, we'll meet tonight and next week, and then the following week is Thanksgiving, and we we will not meet the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. And then it just so happens that the next two Wednesdays, December 1st and December 8th, are traveling days. I'll be headed out to my last conference of the year in Dallas on Wednesday, headed back in Wednesday night, the 8th. So we'll actually end up missing three weeks in a row, uh, starting with Thanksgiving week. And then we will resume our midweek study on how to read and understand the Bible on uh, December 15th. But I'll say more about that in the coming weeks. For now, it's status quo this week and next week, but just wanted to give you a heads up about that uh, in the coming weeks. Okay, so uh, I I saw this cartoon I thought was pretty interesting in light of uh, what we're talking about, kind of cute uh, uh, here in our midweek study on how to read and understand the Bible. The little boy says, I really like your Bible, Dad. How do you turn it on? Well, that is kind of where we're at these days. Most people, uh, you know, use their mobile apps or, or their phones or tablets for their Bible. Um, but I still have my good old-fashioned leather-bound print Bible. It's, uh, it's a little faster for me to find things in here after doing it all these years than it is to type something in. Uh, so don't forget the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. So to the extent that we study the Bible correctly... Uh, we are really getting a, an accurate picture of who the creator of the universe is. To the extent that we do not study the Bible correctly, we're getting a flawed view of who God is. So this is not some type of academic pursuit uh, that we're looking at here. This is very meaningful because, as I think I quoted in the first session six weeks ago, J. Dwight Pentecost had said there is no greater pursuit than the pursuit of the, the holiness of God and the, the, the who God studying God. So we do that through the Word. Uh, otherwise, it's just helter-skelter. We've got this subjective picture, and everybody has a different idea of who God is. But it all comes together in His self-revelation uh, to mankind. So tonight, as we sit down, we want to start with another uh, case study. And I chose uh, some words of Christ that you often hear. 
And that's from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus said, very short verse, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, you know, as we look at that verse, how many times have you heard people quote that verse in the context of somebody says something critical about someone else, and then that person says, well, judge not lest you be judged. You guys heard that before? Of course we have, right? So what does this verse mean, at least as you've understood it or heard it taught, or I mean heard it quoted before, or perhaps even used it in your own conversations? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What does Jesus mean when he says, judge not that you be not judged? Okay. Okay, so um, Ken is, is uh, kind of skipping ahead into the context like we're supposed to do, right? Always look at the concentric circles of context. That's what these exercises are for. And he pointed out that Jesus goes on to say in the same passage, you know, take care of the log in your own eye before you start worrying about the speck in somebody else's. Um, but you start, start out by saying the, the, base, the obvious thing, which is he's saying don't judge. What else? Anybody else have some thoughts on this? So uh, the comment is, uh, if you judge someone, you're going to be judged uh, more harshly. So be careful about judging. Um, and I will always repeat the comments or questions. So I know that at times when someone is making a comment here in the room, it may sound like silence for those of you watching by live stream, but bear with us and I'll always try to repeat the question. Yeah. I heard this one time many years ago that if you didn't judge somebody as a Christian, you wouldn't be judged. So you would, you would kind of like have a free pass into heaven and not be judged. So the comment is, he, he heard a long time ago that if you don't judge someone, then you won't be judged, so you kind of get a free pass. So, uh, Well, there is another passage that talks about uh, in the manner in which you judge others, you will be judged. Uh, but any other comments on this verse before we kind of look a little more closely at it? All right, so the way it's most often misinterpreted by just, again, taking out this one verse and not considering the overall context is as a blanket universal statement that we are simply not to judge others, period. And as I said, it inevitably comes up when someone feels criticized and so they say, well, judge not lest you be judged. And our, our humanistic, worldly culture has, has infiltrated even the church so much that believers have bought into the lie that it's never okay to judge. But in actuality, if we look at the context, Jesus is saying just the opposite. He's saying it's okay to judge. He's, what he's condemning is hypocritical judging. He's condemning hypocritical judging. The Pharisees, which is who he's addressing here, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I believe 
uh, though I've heard others teach differently, but I believe very strongly that the Pharisees were, that he was really targeting them throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And we, I get this because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew account, Matthew's account anyway tells us that they really were bothered by what he said. And he has so much to say in here that seems like he's targeting them. Even though he's speaking to the crowd on the hillside, it seems like he's sort of targeting these Pharisees who I always picture standing in the background in their you know, robes and fancy dresses just looking disdainfully at, at this new teacher on the block. You know. Um, but the, the Pharisees were, were absolutely famous for pointing out others' sins while being blind to their own faults. They were, they've almost become synonymous with hypocrisy. You know, when you say someone's pharisaical, you essentially say they're being a hypocrite because the Pharisees would you know, uh, walk around with this holier-than-thou, self-righteous attitude, looking down um, at others, and, and, uh, and Jesus addresses a lot of this in the Sermon on the Mount about how they would, uh, when they would pray, they would pray these loud, repetitious prayers. When they would give, they would clang their money into the pots so everybody knew they were giving. Um, and so, you know, Jesus basically, you know, says, I'm condemning hypocritical uh, judgment. If you look at verse 5, and I, ha- I can put this on the screen uh, tonight, so let me do that. I'm trying to play with some new technology here that will uh, help us. So if I go here, you should be able to see both uh, our live streamers as well as uh, those of you here, this passage. Jesus says again in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not that you not be judged. And then the verse that Ken was referring to, for what, with what judgment you judge, you will, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck uh, from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck uh, from your brother's eye. So he's not suggesting here that it's wrong uh, to judge. He's just saying you need to judge in fairness. You can't fault someone else for doing something that you know in your heart you're doing. You know, that's that's basically uh, a lie. And it's, it's not only hypocritical, it's pretentious and it's, uh, you know, judgmental. We know, if we go back to our uh, uh, PowerPoint now, um, we know that you know, other passages give us the explicit right to, uh, to judge. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Paul says, talking here about believers within the church versus unbelievers outside the church, he says, what have I to do with judging those who also are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? That, that's our job. So it's perfectly acceptable and the Bible repeatedly in the New Testament challenges us to be aware of those whose behavior is not conforming to Christ and in some cases we're called on to confront them and in love help restore them and so obviously all of that requires the ability to judge but the standard is God's Word not our own self-righteous standard so that we think someone doesn't meet our standard. Uh, We have the, uh, the obligation and duty to look uh, at others. Uh, and so, again, Jesus in, in says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck 
out of your brother's eyes. So there are times when it's appropriate for us to come to a brother or sister and in love, uh, you know, help them see something that maybe is a weakness or something that they're doing that's, you know, that's wrong. Uh, but not until we first have evaluated uh, our own uh, heart. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 7, Jesus, you know, uh, tells us to beware of false prophets. Well, how can you beware of false prophets if you've not shown discernment and judged whether or not what they're saying is accurate or not? That, by definition, requires uh, judgment. He says you will know them by their fruits, their fruits there being their, what they're speaking, what comes out of their mouth. So we have to uh, be able to be aware and know certain things, and the only way to do that is... Uh, by judging. So when, it, when we read the context of this verse, instead of just pulling out one short little bumper sticker verse, it becomes obvious that Christ is condemning hypocrisy uh, and that we are to judge in the right way and in the right manner with the right heart attitude. Yeah. Great question. So the comment is, should we never judge a person's salvation? Or to state that positively, is it ever okay to judge someone's salvation? Um, so the way I answer that, just in, in general in talking about the doctrine of salvation, is that, first of all, ultimately only two people can know with 100% certainty whether a person is saved. That person and God. And that person, absolutely, each individual person can know whether he or she is saved, he or she is saved, based on the authority of Scripture. If you believe what Jesus said, then when you do what Jesus says to do to be saved, you can count on 100% that you're saved, because He promised it, and He's not a liar. So absolutely, a person can have 100% assurance that they are saved, and of course, God knows everything, so God knows. But beyond that, the best we can do is say, based on a person's testimony, what comes out of their mouth, we can compare that to Scripture and make reasonable conclusions about whether they're saved. For example, if a person says, I've never believed in Jesus, I've never trusted in Him for salvation, I don't even believe in God, I have no interest in eternal life, I've never trusted Christ, based on their profession, we can reasonably assume they're not saved, right? Based on what the Bible says about what it takes to be saved. Conversely, if someone says that they have trusted in Christ and Him alone, they've believed the gospel, they've done what the Bible says 160 times you must do to be saved, we are best served by taking them at their word and believing what they say. Um, so is it ever okay to judge the validity of someone's salvation based on their behavior? I don't think so. I think it can raise questions, and a person who professes to be a Christian but is living like a you know, uh, an unbeliever living in carnality, we certainly as a loving brother or sister in Christ ought to take notice of that and go to that person and begin to have a conversation with them. And the first thing we want to ask is, tell me about how you became a Christian. And that's when, based on what they say, you'll begin to get an idea of whether or not that aligns with what the Bible says is required to be a Christian. If a person claims to be a Christian and is living a terrible life in complete sinful debauchery, and you ask them, well, you say you're a Christian. Well, tell me about how you became a Christian. 
and they say, oh, well, my parents had me baptized as an infant, so I've been a Christian for my whole life, or I grew up in the church, or I was raised in a Christian family, or I've been baptized, you know. All of those things should raise red flags that the person doesn't really understand the one and only requirement to be saved, which is faith alone in Christ alone. So at that point, you can then shift into an evangelistic endeavor and begin sharing the plain and simple gospel message that, well, you know, you, I wonder then if you really are a Christian because, you know, based on what you're telling me, the Bible says that's not what it takes to be saved. There's only one way to be saved, and that's by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. Have you ever done that? And so you can kind of walk them through it. But if in a situation like we're hypothesizing about, a person is living a completely sinful life and yet claims to be a Christian, and you graciously go to them and ask them, and they say, well, yeah, I remember trusting Christ as a young man or young woman, and uh, I, I, I placed my faith in Christ. Well, then, most likely, unless they're lying, uh, you are dealing with a sanctification issue, not a justification issue. If, if they truly have believed in Christ as a youngster, then most likely they've just drifted away from the Lord. They're catering to the flesh, like we've talked about the last two Sundays. They're living in the flesh, not the spirit. And again, you probably are dealing with a sanctification, a Christian growth issue, not a justification issue. But even, even in those two scenarios, we're left essentially making educated guesses based on the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the person. Uh, you know, a person can, can lie... And if they are in, intentionally deceitful, like some of these charlatans that we've talked about, false teachers, and they know the verbiage, and they know they've never believed in Christ, but they know to make a ton of money and cheat you know, old widows out of all their life savings, they need to pretend that they're a Christian, then they, if you ask them that question, might say, yes, I trusted Christ. And they, they might be lying. So... Again, in an absolute sense, the only two people that can know with 100% certainty whether someone is a believer or not is that person and God. But I, I think the Bible has so much to say about our profession and testimonies and so forth that clearly uh, over time you, can, you would probably be able to pick out the charlatans and the ones that are lying and, and you, you ought to take people at their word if they say they are a believer. You ought to take them at their word. Yeah. Well, in this passage in Matthew 7, so the comment is that uh, what Jesus was warning the Jews to do is to not ultimately crucify him. Well, in the context, remember, this uh, sermon takes place toward the beginning of Christ's ministry, not the very beginning, the way Matthew has it, probably closer to nine months or a year into his ministry, but still, it was a three and a half year ministry. Um, if you look at Matthew's flow of thought, and, and we haven't gotten there yet, but at some point we're going to get to the different genres of Scripture. So this is gospel literature, and we're going to talk about how gospel writers are writing 
are, are, in, are under the inspiration of the Spirit, including selected events from the life and ministry of Christ, but they're organizing them along a theological theme. And Matthew's argument is to prove that Jesus is the King of Kings, the long-awaited Son of David, the Messiah, right? So everything from his genealogy all the way through his flow of thought, he's you know, reminding them that Jesus is the true Messiah. So when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, the reason Matthew puts this here is he's juxtaposing the self-righteous piety of the unbelieving Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, with the simple humility of the, the downtrodden, the harlots, the tax collectors, and so forth. And so that's why he sort of crescendos here at the midpoint, at the very end of chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7, of Matthew anyway. Um, and he kind of crescendos in the midpoint there with, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom, Matthew 5.20. And then he goes on to say, in fact, at the end of chapter 5, you have to be perfect. If you want to get into the kingdom, you have to be perfect. So he's pointing out that the, the self-righteous performance uh, you know, of the Pharisees is ultimately no closer to the standard than the, the worst tax collectors and harlots. We all fall short. And so that's why I think at the end, Jesus says at the end of chapter 7, at the end of the sermon, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this? But he's going to say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. And then, coming right out of this account of the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew gives, the next thing that Matthew includes in chapter 8 is Matthew is Jesus' encounter with the Gentile centurion, who I think it was his son, uh, uh, needed healing. And Jesus commends, if you remember, the faith of this Gentile, I mean, you can almost see the Pharisees aghast at Jesus commending this unclean Gentile when he says, I've not seen such great faith, even in Israel. And then he says, but I tell you the truth, uh, the sons of the, the people will come from the east and the west someday in the kingdom to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the re reference there to the east and the west is the Gentiles from all, all around the city will come in, sit down at the banqueting table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he adds, but the sons of the kingdom, a distinct reference to Jews, and in this case, unbelieving Jews, will be cast out. So I, I think, you know, yes, ultimately, I guess you could say that the entire gospel accounts are showing how Israel ultimately rejected the Messiah, crowned him with thorns, um, I wouldn't exactly say that the Sermon on the Mount is specifically trying to get the Jews not to crucify him, but in a manner of speaking, yeah, it's it's getting Jesus' whole earthly ministry was trying to change the the erroneous view that by this time in the first century the Jews had developed about who the Messiah was. They had basically, for several centuries, abandoned the purity of, of the, the whole Ju Judaistic system and, and, and how it pointed to the Messiah. And they were, as you know, I mean, you had Herod as the king and you had all these governmental religious, you know, overlaps. And so, um, so I think, you know, I wouldn't quite be as uh, narrowly focused on that, but it's definitely part of the picture for sure. 
All right, so let's move on. I'm going to get back to our presentation for tonight. And uh, I'm really thankful that the new version that I use of this software allows me to put the Bible verses up there. I've uh, been able to do that in, in a room like this for 20 years, but using live streaming, it's just a little bit harder to be able to do it there and let the people at home see it. And finally, I've got that capability, but uh, still a little bit new. So, all right, well, let's, uh, let's go on then to what we want to talk about tonight, just to review. Uh, we've talked about here the five steps in the Bible study process. Uh, step one, start with the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context. We're going to give you a lot of tools that help you understand the literal aspect, understand the grammatical aspect, and understand the historical context as we go through this series. Then you compare Scripture with Scripture. And I wanted to point out that in our case study tonight in Matthew 7, did you notice how I went to 1 Corinthians that's step two. That's comparing Scripture with Scripture. So if you just look at one verse without any context and without looking anywhere else in the Bible, remember the concentric circles. It's not, it's not just about um, you know, looking at the verse right before and the verse right after. It's about looking at the, ultimately the whole Bible because the Bible cannot contradict itself. But if you just looked at that one uh, verse, in verse 1, you might come away with this universal dictum that you can never judge under any circumstances in any way. But yet, by simply comparing one verse, we notice that clearly the Bible says to judge in certain cases. So then you go back to Matthew 7 and you say, well, then what did Jesus mean? And you begin to, to put it together. So all we were doing in a must, very hasty uh, fashion tonight is step one and then step two. But then uh, before you get to step three, we will have studied the entire teaching of Scripture on the concept of discernment, judgment, criticism, you know, uh, marking those who are contrary to the doctrine, how you interact with sinning believers, all kinds of related topics. But at step three, you formulate your belief system. And then in steps four and five, you put it to work. Uh, you use those truth, timeless truths of Scripture to reject or accept truth claims from in the world. And then most importantly, you use them to change uh, your own life. So we talked about how these uh, basically are the difference between the meaning of the text and the significance. And uh, so, uh, and then, uh, let's see, we talked about the books of the Bible. Here, I'm going to just put these up quickly so we don't take too much time with review. But we talked about how the Old and New Testaments are structured with different types of literature. It's all the inspired Word of God, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, the the uh, divine origin of the Bible and the extraordinary nature of this book. Um, but in, even still, given the way language works, certain types of literature uh, are in the Bible are intended to be read and understood differently. So that's why we're talking about how to read and understand the Bible. And I think I've pointed this out before, but if you just open up, say, anywhere in Psalms or Proverbs... It doesn't matter what English version you have, unless you have like a really paraphrase type, like the message or something like that. But if you have a generally a, a formal equivalent translation, a word for word, just open it up anywhere in Psalms. It doesn't matter where. But I want to point out how in the English translation, the way it's structured on the page is somewhat like poetry. It's, it's organized 
you know, differently into different stanzas and you see wider gaps between each stanza and you see each verse kind of standing alone. But now I'll flip over to uh, anywhere in Kings, for example. And you should notice that in your English Bible, um, it's full justified in each column. This is historical narrative. It's like reading a history book. It's not structured like poetry. That's, that's just the way in translating we reflect the fact that we're dealing with different types of, uh, of literature. Now, when you get to the, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, they are essentially historical narratives, so they're going to look the same way in the way it's translated and laid out on the page, but like the Gospels, they are unique in that it's not strictly speaking historical, like they're giving a blow-by-blow -blow account. They're organizing information in order to communicate a broader message. And we'll talk about that. Um, but so those are just some, you know, uh, giving you some ideas of how at a glance you ought to be able to tell that even though it's one book, it, each type of literature, meaning each book of the Bible, you need to be aware of where it fits, and it makes, it makes a difference. Um, for example, uh, nar historical narratives, such as you know, the Old Testament books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and so on, or the New Testament book of Acts, do not teach a doctrine explicitly. They illustrate doctrines that are taught elsewhere, mainly in the epistles or the wisdom poetry literature. So a lot of churches and denominations through the years have built their doctrine from the book of Acts. And what they don't understand is that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. You see the difference? The book of Acts tells us what happened, but it doesn't tell us that that is what must happen. You get into the epistles, and those are inherently doctrinal, and Paul is very explicitly saying, you know, how to be saved and what you have to believe to be saved. For example, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us exactly what the gospel is and how believing it you can be saved. Um, so uh, we need to be sensitive to that. And a lot of people have built uh, principles around historical portions of Scripture that may or may not be true. Um, not everything we see in a historical portion of Scripture is intended to be uh, modeled, right? I mean, you look at Abraham uh, or any of the patriarchs, Isaac or Jacob, they often did things that were by no means moral or godly or whatever. And yet God, the, these books of the Bible are just telling us what happened, often without commentary. We have to look elsewhere to see, oh, was this good? Or not? Or was this an example where God allowed something bad to happen, but He brought good out of it in spite of it? Or maybe they did something wrong and suffered a consequence for it? Those kinds of things. So, we, not just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's something that is intended to be an example for us to follow. Historical narratives, we have to you know look at the context and see what it's talking about and compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, not to get too much into the weeds about historical, hold that thought for one second, about historical parts of Scripture, there are portions that do give absolute uh, you know, uh, truth statements, if you will, 
that are to be followed, and that is whenever within the historical narrative, God is speaking. If God is speaking, that obviously never changes, and He's immutable and so forth. Um, and so we can, we can it, it is perfectly acceptable to principalize any portion of Scripture as long as you do it the right way. Paul says all Scripture is profitable. So it's not like you only want to look at the epistles to know what to do. We look at the big picture. But in searching for that meaning, and remember how we said meaning is absolute, there's only one meaning, we need to take into account the historical uh, and, and grammatical and literary aspect of where it occurs and, and follow those rules. Yeah. I think you've answered your own question. So the question is when a biblical author quotes from a source that's not in the Bible, and we see this in the New Testament too with Paul quoting from different philosophers and so forth, does that mean that somehow those books are inspired? The answer is no. But anything in the Bible is inspired and authoritative. So uh, it doesn't matter what the source was, if God through the inspiration in, through the Holy Spirit inspired the human authors of Scripture to record that in Scripture, that makes it inspired at that moment. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean who they're quoting, everything else is inspired by no means. It's not if it's not in the Bible. Is there some place we can find those books? Oh, I'm sure you can. Uh, uh, not necessarily the book. The question is, can you find those books? I don't know if you can find the books, because back in the Old Testament times, they weren't even, didn't even have books, they had scrolls. But certainly uh, through the study of uh, antiquities and other ancient literature, you can find uh, snippets of it. Certainly the Greek philosophers that sometimes are quoted in the, in the New Testament. Yeah, you can find more about what they wrote. All right, so I want to skip ahead now to, and we're going to come back to this as a running template for how we go from here on out to talk about different aspects of the Bible. Uh, these, some of these slides are taken from my separate uh, eight-part video series on how we got our Bible. But I think this is helpful uh, to, to kind of start at the 35,000-foot level and kind of see what we're talking about. And I know at least that's the way my mind works. So essentially, we're starting with truth in God's mind. And going from that, this is the shortcut, to modern English versions of our Bible to ultimately truth in our minds. Now, to get from point A to point C there, a lot happens. And that's really what we want to start out with tonight as we get into what I'm going to call the uh, extraordinary nature of the Bible. And I know we're itching to get into the nuts and bolts, at least I am. It's hard for me to pull back the reins. But I, I think it's so important before we get into specifics of how to do Bible study methods properly that we really have a firm grasp on what it is we're holding in our hand. Because it, it ought to 
Every time we pick up the Bible, it ought to give us a sense of reverence to realize this is the very creator of the universe saying, here I am, look at me, right? So I want to just talk about a couple of things in, the, in this journey. Again, this is the, the big picture map. Maybe you might call it the table of contents, but now we're going to look down in the subsections and go from truth in God's mind ultimately to truth uh, in the reader's mind. So the first step, is to go after the truth in God's mind. God is eternal. So God says, okay, I want to reveal myself to mankind. And he does that through the process of revelation. And uh, by the way, this full chart is available in the Not By Works chart book. Uh, if you don't have an interest in wanting to buy the chart book, feel free to email me and I'll send you this one chart happily if you want to just have this for your notes. Uh, we're not going to get through it all. Uh, well, we are. I am going to go through it all just right now, but then we're going to come back and look at the first couple of things. But it starts with revelation. Uh, we're going to talk about what that means. It, it's the unveiling of, of God. It's the self-unveiling of God. It's where we get the word, uh, I mean, it's the Greek word apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse. It's also the, last, the name of the last book of the Bible, but it is a doctrine, the doctrine of revelation, which is how God communicated himself to the human authors. So it goes from truth in God's mind through revelation unveiled in the mind of the human authors. Now, everybody I think knows that there were some 40 different human authors over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents um, who God used to record Scripture. Um, but then... Uh, it's got to get from their minds to the, the scroll or the sheepskin or the papyrus or whatever it is. And that happens through inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration. And that is that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired, carried along these human authors to record in written form. Remember, the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is inspired, literally God-breathed. The word Scripture is the Greek word graphe, which means writings. It's where we get the English word graffiti, right? So it's important to understand that the, the Bible used written words. It's not just ideas that are inspired. It's the actual you know, consonants and verbs and not, uh, or consonants and uh, uh, vowels, although the Hebrew text didn't even have vowels, uh, but it's, it's the very words. That's every jot and tittle is what Jesus says in uh, Matthew 5. So and then it's got to go from, now, now you've got at some point by the end of the first century, you've got 66 documents that God revealed through the, the process of revelation to these human authors who then through the process of inspiration recorded them in written form. But how do we know where they are? I mean, what, what do we do? They're, they were all over a period of 1,500 years. They've been copied by scribes and so forth. We don't have the, the, what's called the autograph or the original document of these. They've long since disintegrated. They weren't like written and then put in a perfectly preserved glass case for people to come at and look at. They were written so that they could be distributed and read and read aloud and passed around. So 
that brings us to the idea of canonicity, which is when we discovered these 66 nuggets of gold that God had inspired through these human authors. And we're going to talk about canonicity in, in the course of this study, uh, but I want to make sure that we dispel the mistaken notion that canonicity is the process by which um, the uh, ch early church determined what books would be in the Bible. That's the way most people define canonicity out of ignorance, with no offense meant. But they think canonicity, oh yeah, that's when the church uh, determined what books would come in here. No, no, no. Who determined which of the 66 books were inspired? God, as you see on this chart. So canonicity was more about the discovery of them. And yes, God superintended over that process. Yes, there were some man-made rules that the early church came up with to sort of validate that something was in fact of a unique nature, an inspired nature of God. Um, but God ultimately was the arbiter of what was part of the Bible and what wasn't. So it's like I've used the illustration before of panning for gold. I mean, when you're panning for gold and you're looking at those rocks that come up, you know, you don't get to determine what's gold and what isn't. It's either gold or it's not. It's, inst it's instinctive. It's intrinsic. And the same way these 66 books of the Bible were inspired, the fact that it took until roughly 397 A.D. for the church to, you know, discover them all and basically come to the recognition that, oh, yes, these 66 are the Bible is beside the point. They didn't get inspired with, you know, Athanasius and that first full canon. They were inspired the moment they were written in the first century, talking about the New Testament anyway. And so the process of canonicity, we then sort of recognized and discovered, this is the Bible, thus saith the Lord. Okay, now it didn't look like this with a codex, a leather binding, and organized this way with the chapters and numbers. That came along much later. But the documents that the human authors wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit were discovered by this point. And then the next process is what we call preservation. And that is the doctrine that God, obviously, since these words are living and active, uh, He preserved the writings of these 66 uh, documents. And when I use the term 66, I'm using that just because that's what we're familiar with. Some of the books uh, in the Old Testament were put together as one, and then we separated them into two, and so forth and so on. But um, these original manuscripts, uh, as I said, they disintegrated over time. They're not, we don't have the autograph, you know. So what we have are um, copies that have been handed down through the centuries. And when it comes to the New Testament, for example, we have some six or 7,000 manuscript fragments of, of the New Testament. And many of those are, all of those are copies, scribal copies. Well, in the same way that today, when we as a teacher uh, take a verse of Scripture and maybe we type it out in a bulletin, or type it out on a screen for a PowerPoint slide, or maybe write it on a white marker board. If we were to make an error 
a typo, we call it, right? And leave out a word by mistake or maybe invert some letters in a word on the screen. That does not impugn the inspiration and authority of God's Word. That's called a typo. Well, similarly, ever since the original manuscripts were written, which were perfect, as scribes copied them, there were occasionally human errors, scribal errors, typos is what we would call them. And that just comes with the territory. So what scholars have to do is study this massive collection of these ancient manuscripts, compare them with one another, and the typos are obvious. You can usually tell, and we'll get into some examples of scribal errors in Scripture, um, uh, and that's the reason some English translations use different words at different times because they're looking at different manuscripts. Uh, we'll give some examples of that, but most of them are very obvious just the way they are in English. You know, uh, uh, I'm sure Anne, who's in the publishing industry, can tell you there's no book that's not going to have multiple typos in it, probably, right? It's just human nature. But if you're reading along in a book and you come across the word, which this, it's less common today because of technology and autocorrect and those kinds of things, but back in the day when they literally used typesetters and stuff um, and printing presses and all that before digital technology, if you were reading a book and you came across the word T-E-H, you knew that was a typo for the word the, T-H-E. It just made a mistake, right? And it doesn't change the meaning. It's obvious it's a mistake. So the same thing is true of, of all of these manuscripts. Now, the Old Testament manuscripts are, uh, by comparison anyway, far, more, far, far less inclined towards scribal errors because the, the Jewish scribes later on became, they were called Masoretes, Masoretic uh, scribes, they were just meticulous. And we've always kind of known that, um, but we, we really found out uh, for sure just how precise and accurate they were and careful they were in making sure that they copied the Old Testament scrolls when in 1947 we discovered a treasure trove of ancient Hebrew scrolls called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, you remember the story, a shepherd boy was uh, tossing a rock or something into a cave. He heard a clay pot break. He goes in and discovers that in this hidden cave, that's where they found around the Dead Sea, a bunch of ancient Hebrew scrolls of the Old Testament. And they were a, a thousand years older than the, the uh, Hebrew manuscripts that we had in existence at that day. Uh, at that time in 1947. So it's called extant. Extant means in our possession today. So when they found those scrolls in 1947, it took our extant manuscripts back a thousand years. And we were able to compare what those manuscripts, that they, those scrolls that they found around the Dead Sea. By the way, that exploration is still going, and they're still finding stuff. And we, I have a, a personal friend who's leading that uh, exploration, a uh, great scholar by the name of Randall, Randall Price, Randy Price. Um, but they compared those to the ones they already had, that, which were from roughly the 8th century A.D. So think about that. Let's get our dates in our mind. The, before the Dead Sea Scrolls find, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts, now when was the Old Testament written? From 1440. B.C. until 400 B.C. in the B.C. era. 
from Genesis and, four, and the first five books in the 1400s until Malachi in the 400s, so about a thousand-year period. But because of their nature of how they were very fragile and so forth, and we didn't have near the technology and preservatives that we have today, the oldest ones we knew about in our existence were from 800 years after Christ. When we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, many of these dated from 200 B.C. So it took us back a thousand years in terms of the, the age of these. It's kind of like when someone finds a painting at a garage sale or buys a house and looks up in the attic and finds a secret room. That's what we're hoping happens. And you look in that secret room and there's this ancient you know, painting by Picasso and it's, it turns out, wow, this was a thousand years old and it's worth so much money. Um, but that's kind of what happened. But the point is, God, in spite of all of these scribal copies of both the Old Testament manuscripts and the New Testament, God divinely preserved the original reading in these manuscripts somewhere. Now, they're not marked with a note. We have to study them and look and compare and see which one most likely represents the original. And that's a fairly... Uh, involved process, but at the end of the day, fairly simple. There are very few, you know, most of the manuscripts agree on 98.6% of the content. It's just 1.4% where there's different readings of a certain verse, and you've got to decide which one is probably the original, which one was a scribal mistake, right? So this is what we are talking about here about having discovered, oh, these are the ones. Now we don't have the actual original manuscripts, so we've got to look at all of these copies. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, how do they date them? There are lots of ways that we can date biblical books from internal evidence as well as external evidence. So there are many um, clues within the text that tell us uh, what that mentioned actual dates, especially in the Old Testament. And then we, and, and so we can sort of get what's called in the, in the process of dating the terminus ad quem and the terminus ad quo, the uh, beginning, I think I've got those right. Anyway, one is the begin, the earliest beginning date and the latest ending date. And then we sort of narrow it down from historical context, references, if they mention a king, well, we can look at historical documents, we know when that king reigned, you know. So there's lots of ways that it's pretty easy to, uh, uh, to date it. And by the way, I gave you that book on the apostolic age. Have you had a chance to read it? Only a Putting you right on the spot here. Only a portion of it? Okay, well, it, it's got some great material in there, and he kind of talks about how to date, you know, stuff. So we, we, we know, like we have a lot of extra-biblical historical data. All right, so any questions about so far? We're trying to get to ultimately truth in the reader's mind so that it can change our life, right? That's the goal, yeah. I don't think so. I mean, I could be wrong, but because uh, I'm not a Jewish expert, but I, I've, I think I would have picked that up somewhere along the way. But yeah, they have other companion, like commentaries and things that are held in high esteem within the Jewish tradition. But the actual Bible, I think, is the same. And I'm sure I'll get an email from some of my scholarly friends if I'm wrong about that. So, but then having sort of studied the manuscripts and coming up with a 
replication of the original, right? None of us read fluent Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, right? So then you have to go to the translation process to come up with our modern English uh, Bibles. And that too, there are various approaches to that and different ways in which uh, people uh, do that. We uh, believe that the best English versions for study, for serious study, are word for word, and that's kind of a bad word in academic scholarly circles because, you know, the intellectual elite will say, well, there's no such thing as an, ult as an exact word for word. Well, I get that, but what we mean by word for word is we want to try to reflect as best we can the meaning of the Greek or Hebrew in an English word, and sometimes that's hard to do, you know, but I believe for, for you know, reading and understanding the Bible, we want it to say what it says and then leave it to the reader to, 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 just, to figure out the meaning, right? And so I've, I've talked before, uh, and we got into this a little bit in passing many months ago in our midweek service, but, you know, when you get into figures of speech and idioms and cultural idioms, it can be difficult. Do you translate the meaning of the cultural idiom, or do you translate word for word the idiom and leave it up to the reader to figure out what it means? So in the Hebrew culture, the concept of uh, nostrils flaring is how, they is how they communicate anger. So they might say, the Bible might say, the king's nostrils flared, or with flaring nostrils, he, and that means he was angry. That's just a poetic or idiomatic way to say that. So some English versions will say, the king got angry which is correct, but that's not what the, the writer of Scripture said under the inspiration when the quill hit the sheepskin. And so I believe we want to know what he said. And then, obviously, we come across a lot of uh, words and concepts and things that, what in the world does that mean? You know, I through the, the camel through the eye of a needle, you know, what, what's going on here? Those kinds of things. And so, uh, but we do that in English. You know, we, when we read with our kids when they were younger, um, frequently we would stop, get out a dictionary, and look up a word, or have the kids do that, I mean, right? And it's the way you learn. So same thing is true in reading the Word of God. You're going to come across things and you're thinking, I'm not sure what that means. And that's where using tools such as customs and manners books, there's several great customs and manners books of biblical times, uh, grammatical books, uh, word study books, even commentaries can sometimes help, you know, explain certain uh, concepts that aren't there. So the translation process is probably beyond the scope of what we want to talk about in this series, but just recognize that not all modern English translations are created equal. They have different agendas, different goals, different methodologies. I believe for serious study, you want to try for one that is word for word as best it can be. It's called formal equivalent as opposed to dynamic equivalent. All right, and then we're not there yet. We haven't arrived at, you know, truth in our minds. Um, the, through the process of illumination and interpretation, it comes to our mind, right? So now we, un we have read and understood what God's truth he wanted to reveal to us, what truth He wanted to reveal to us. So 
illumination and interpretation. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the process whereby the Holy Spirit helps us see the big picture, connect the dots, connect Scripture to Scripture, and, and, and ultimately, the simplest way to define illumination is that it's the Holy Spirit's role in helping the reader to welcome and embrace the truth of God's Word. Illumination is not giving us meaning. That's very important to understand because if arriving at the meaning of a particular text was the work of the Holy Spirit, we would all understand it perfectly because we all have the same Holy Spirit and He's perfect, right? So He wouldn't like give Gary a partial, partial meaning and me a little bit better meaning. And so, so we don't want to blame meaning on the Holy Spirit, right? So the, the doctrine of illumination is not where the Holy Spirit gives us meaning. It's another common misdefinition, uh, just like people misdefine canonization as the church deciding what books were in the Bible. Illumination is not the Holy Spirit's role in helping us arrive at the meaning. He helps us to welcome and embrace. But interpretation, which is what this whole series is about, is how we arrive at the meaning. So we, we, by this point, we've gotten the meaning that God originally communicated through revelation to the minds of the human authors who then recorded it accurately through the doctrine of inspiration. It was then discovered in the early days of the church, preserved through the centuries, translated into our Bibles, and now it comes to us through proper interpretation. But if you remember anything from our five steps, that's not where this process uh, stops. There's one more step, which is application, which is to change our life. That's the goal. That's the goal. Just because we understand accurately the meaning of a passage of Scripture means nothing if we don't apply it to our lives. And, and that's the way it changes our life. So in the coming weeks, we're going to break these down into bite-sized parts and look more carefully at each uh, box. And so next time, we're going to look at the, uh, just the amazing nature of, you know, extraordinary nature, really, of God's Word that He revealed and was written down in the original documents to just kind of give us an appreciation for that. Any questions before we wrap up tonight? This gives you a good roadmap of where we're headed. Yeah. Yes, so the question is about canonicity and stages, particularly as it relates to the Old Testament. Yeah, there was no real debate about the Old Testament. Uh, that was universally recognized very early on. I don't remember the dates, but well before 397. It's mainly the New Testament books that were debated, and you know there were a lot of uh, pseudepigraphal writings, fake writings that were tried to throw in, and people said these are inspired, but they really weren't. But by the time you get to... You know, certainly the 4th century, it was widely recognized that these 27 books are the inspired books of God. Yeah? I don't know enough about that, that, uh, that extra-biblical document to say. I do know that it was very common in the, you know, um, apocryphal writings to, you know, for fake people to... fake people to write them under a fake name, you know, to claim that they were Peter. But I honestly don't know enough about that one. 
Yes. Yes, just the Old Testament. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. The question is, do Jews believe the Old Testament is the inspired word? Absolutely. You know, the Torah. It's their. It's the Law and the Prophets. It's their. It's their. It's God's. You know, revelation. Him. They write it on their doorposts and they train up their children in it. They absolutely believe that it was inspired by God. Yep. And the prophets that wrote most of it were writing what God Yahweh wanted them to know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mention that next week, and I, uh, we'll come back to this next week too, um, but I wanted to compare the Koran to the, the Bible, and um, just to, to illustrate just how extraordinary it is. So the Koran was compiled by one individual, and I won't even begin to pronounce his name because I don't speak Arabic, whereas again, the Bible was written by 40 individuals with 12 plus unique vocations. The Quran was done from one location, but the, the Bible was written across three continents. The original compilation of the Quran was 632 to 634 AD, but then it, all of those were destroyed and a second compilation came around 650 AD, whereas the Bible happened over a 1500 year period from 1446 to 95 AD. The oldest extant, meaning existing fragment that we have of the Quran is from 732 AD, whereas we have oldest fragments of the Old Testament dating back to 200 BC. And so the, the point of this is to show the amazing continuity. I mean, the Quran contradicts itself all over the place, and it does not have any cohesion. But the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you've got incredible you know, uh, uh, correlation and, and consistency. So that's the reason, for example, in, in Revelation, um, where is it, 12, where it says that serpent of old who is the devil, and it, which was written in 95 A.D., corresponds to what Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 3, you know, and and so that, you know, this is that cross-referencing at that second point. That's why it's so important part of the Bible study process because unlike the Quran, and unlike any other book on the planet, the Bible has 40 human authors, little a, but one divine author, capital A. And so that makes it a unique book. By the way, I, this afternoon I found a, a picture from another presentation I had done of the oldest existing manuscript of the New Testament, which is... Uh, it's called P52, uh, and I show the I show a lot of these in the How We Got Our Bible eight-part video series. Um, but it's about two and a half by three and a half inches, and it reflects a few verses from the Gospel of John, specifically chapter 18, a few verses from chapter 18. And it's currently held in the Rylands Library in Manchester, England, and this is what it looks like. So when we talk about six, seven thousand plus manuscripts or manuscript fragments, it's everything from entire bound manuscripts of the whole New Testament, or like in one case, there's one what's called a codex, which this is just a codex, anything with a binding, of all 13 of Paul's epistles and Hebrews from like, I think it's the 400s. So, which tells us that early on the church 
thought Paul wrote Hebrews, and they were binding all of his letters together. Um, so, uh, but everything from that to partial, you know, several pages and leaflets to tiny fragments like this. And, and we go back to that textual criticism, um, you know, up here, preservation and the study of the ancient manuscripts. That's what they're studying and comparing and making note of any discrepancies. And then you have to decide if you got a discrepancy, is version A the original or is version B the original, right? But to your question, you know, I would assume that obviously they b believe that, you know, Muhammad is the great prophet and then Allah inspired this. And so they think there's, you know, in their version, divine inspiration, but it's obviously not inspired by the one true God, of course. And in, and that chart was just, or that uh, slide here is just to sort of illustrate how it pales in comparison, uh, just even looking at it through human eyes. Yeah, last question, just for y'all's sake. I'll stay all night, but I know people want to go home. Uh, I think so. If you're not for me, you're against me, Jesus said. So, pretty much only leaves one option. The question was, was the Quran inspired by Satan? So now you're trying to get someone to put a fatwa out on me with these answers to questions. But anyway, I'll, uh, I'll survive. But I'm just telling you like it is. Telling you what the Bible says. So, All right, well, thank you guys. We'll pick up uh, next uh, time uh, there. And uh, that'll be, this next time will be our last one before a three-week break because of Thanksgiving and my travel schedule. Then we'll come back and I'm thinking we'll go all the way through the end of the year because even around Christmas, it's several days before Christmas. Christmas is like on, a, I think, Saturday or Sunday. So it, we, I don't, for my part, I don't see any reason why we couldn't still meet that week. But we'll talk about that as we get closer. But definitely we'll meet next week. So we'll see you at 6 o'clock Mountain Time next week.